0: To rescue, to redeem, to re-image us in your image. And so we give thanks. And we ask for your help to embrace what is taught today by your word and to enjoy the glory of the news that Jesus is the friend of sinners. So warm our hearts with the Gospel today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When Jesus came to us in the flesh, He came to resolve the great need that we have. And that need is to know God. To know Him accurately. And to know Him... Personally, to know Him savingly, to know Him intimately, to know Him eternally. That's the great need that we have. And as Jesus came to do that, He called men and women to Himself, and as they came to Him, He began growing them in the likeness of Himself, and giving them the task as they were growing, To show others what God is like. And so that was his ministry. To make God known to us. To grow his disciples in his likeness. So that he could send them out and they could show others what God is like. And that is what's happening in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew is telling about the salvation of sinners. Now, Russell, if you'll bring up the slide that says, "Who are the sinners?" When we hear that word in the text, we need to understand that this was a group of people. They were a class of people. They were known for being irreligious, irreverent, immoral, impure. And they were the indigent, infirm, and the physically impaired. They were anyone who appeared to not be the up-and-coming religious people of the day. And so when Jesus uses the term sinners, when the Pharisees use the term sinners, when later Paul uses the term sinners, it's generally referring to a class of people that were openly, willfully, sinfully separated from God. And they are the people who are externally demonstrating what we are internally capable of or already culpable for, guilty of. And so we have to ask the question, why was Jesus eating and drinking with them? Well, he was doing three primary things as he ate and drank with them. He was welcoming them to himself. This was a shock when he goes and he calls Matthew, when he eats and drinks and dines with, when he is known as friend of sinners, when he has tax collectors and prostitutes following him and being drawn to him, he is welcoming them. He's doing a surprising thing. He's letting them know that God welcomes sinners. This is good news to us. But he's also affirming that they're made in the image of God and because of that, they have a worth that is built in by their Creator that hasn't been taken away by what they've done with their lives. It hasn't been removed by their sin. They are still precious in His sight, made in His image, and loved by Him. But he's also inviting them, not just to welcome them to himself, not to just affirm that they're made in his image, but inviting them into a new and personal intimate relationship wherein they are adopted as sons and daughters of the living God, where they're given this glorious privilege of an intimate relationship to call him Daddy, to call Jesus brother, to be thought of and considered the bride of Christ. All of these intimate terms that describe the highest and most intimate of relationships. And so here is Jesus welcoming, affirming, and inviting sinners to Himself. And He does so, surprisingly, number one in your outline, Jesus gives a surprising call to Matthew. A tax collector. Verse nine, and as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax office. It's hard for us because we don't have some way to gauge the kind of person a tax collector would be considered. We don't have a societal equal. There's no thing going on in our society today where we could say a tax collector is like this, because there's no equal to a tax collector in today's society. Since the Declaration of Independence in the United States, the United States hasn't been under the domination of any country that would tax us, abuse us, um, cause harm to us, so we have no way of really relating to the fact that Israel sat under the violent domination of Rome. And Rome was not afraid to make their domination clear, whether it be from brutal beatings, to the horrors of beheading, and even to the delayed death of a crucifixion. Rome would make her force known to anyone who resisted her authority. And so when someone would betray their country and go to work for the oppressor, they were not just sort of disregarded, they were utterly hated. The sight of them... Brought both fear because of their ability to excise these taxes, and it brought hatred because of how they used that ability to enrich their own families, their own pockets, off of the backs of the suffering people of Israel. And so they were hated. And so when you lead up to this picture of Jesus walking up to a tax collector and calling him to be one of his disciples, it's surprising to everyone involved, probably to all of those who are already following him as well. The tax collectors would be known as collaborators. There would be people who were lending a hand to the financing of state-sponsored oppression. And so they would have had a hand in taking from rich and poor, from those who were hurting, those who were suffering under things that Rome had already done, maybe a crucified or beheaded or beaten family member, maybe just the living in fear all the time of what Rome could do if they were mad. And so this is going on, and Jesus walks right up to this guy, and he does a very surprising thing. He says to this guy, a tax collector, he says, follow me. That's interesting that he did. When we get the record in Mark and in Luke, we have a few added words there where it says that he left everything and followed him. So there was not just a departure from the table that he was occupying, but the entire profession and all of its gain, all that it represented. He gets up and he walks away from it. He breaks with the old and connects with the new. And there's this beautiful picture of him rising up from his table, looking at Jesus, seeing someone, something more valuable than his career, more valuable than his possessions, more valuable than his riches, more valuable than his retirement plan, more valuable than all he had amassed through this, all the relationships and power he enjoyed, suddenly he breaks with it all. And he follows an itinerant preacher and he walks away. So there's a shock to all of this. There's a surprise for everyone involved. That leads us to number two. Jesus spent an extraordinary amount of time in contact with sinners. Look at what happens in verse 10. And it happened that as He was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax gatherers and sinners were dining with Jesus and with His disciples. We learn later on In chapter 11, verse 19, that Jesus had gained a reputation by this. He did this so often, so frequently, so extraordinarily often, that folks started calling him friend of sinners. became sort of a nickname for Jesus. They started throwing that around in their descriptions of him. Have you seen him? Yeah, that's that guy. He's the friend of sinners. And they would criticize the kind of people that hung out with him. Tax collectors, prostitutes, and then just the general word, sinners. And so he spent an extraordinary amount of time in contact with them. He's reclining at the table. So here's Jesus in the posture of complete relaxation in a household. It's the posture that would be assumed in the presence of, Of those who were closest. And here's Jesus right in the middle. And they're being drawn to him. The tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners, they're being drawn to him. This starts to get people's attention. Word gets out. Observers come. Jesus is at Matthew's house. You know what that guy's like. Why don't we go peep in the windows? And they start checking out. Is this true? This young preacher that's going around. This young rabbi that's proclaiming. the What's he known for? Well, we know where he is today. He's over at Matthew's house. And so the observing... Of his life, as folks begin to look at him, they begin to question, why is that kind of person drawn to Jesus? Why are those kind of people drawn to him? In fact, if you look in verse 10, it uses the word many. So wasn't just a couple of folks. All of a sudden, Matthew has this invite to Jesus at the house. (laughs) And you go over to the tax collector's row and the offices and wherever it is. And they're not there. All of a sudden, they're all gathered around this one guy. And they're around a table with him. They're doing the thing that affirms others. They're eating together. Back in that day, it was a big deal to eat, to dine, to share a meal with someone, because you were welcoming them. You were giving an affirmation to them. You were inviting them into your intimacy, your family, your home, your relationship. And so all of a sudden, many of them begin to come to Jesus. And he's in contact with them. They're talking. I wish that we had the record of some of the conversations. We don't. But we know that they're together and that Jesus is bringing the good news of the kingdom to them. So something happens as a result. Number three, Jesus' call of Matthew and contact with sinners led to conflict. With who? The self righteous Something begins to brew up now that's going to be the end of Jesus in terms of his earthly life. As the self-righteous begin to look at Jesus and look at who he's drawing to himself, they begin to critique him because of who he is is attracting to himself. They begin to say, why is your teacher, why is Jesus, why is he eating with, dining with, and they say it very plainly in verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax gatherers and sinners? So evidently, the tax gatherers' friends came. They were probably not known for wholesome crowds. They were probably not known for having the religious leaders in their homes or in their circles or going on in their daily interactions. And so all of a sudden, there's this real motley crowd around Jesus. Tax gatherers, and then the general term, sinners. They're all coming in, they're gathering around, and the Pharisees, the self-righteous, they step back, and they ask the question, why? Now, I love how Jesus is always working to make God known and to make Him clear. So as He's doing this, He's setting up for the question to be asked, so that He can answer it, because the answer is so beautiful, the answer is so helpful to us. It's important to understand why the Pharisees are upset. If you'll come with me for just a moment to Luke chapter 12. When Jesus warned His disciples, He warned them about certain things that they should be very aware of. He doesn't often use the word beware or watch out or look out. But when he does, behind it is something really dangerous. So in chapter 12 of Luke, verse 1, he says this. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of the multitude had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, He began saying to His disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. When the Pharisees saw that Jesus was drawing sinners to Himself, it began to make them feel very uncomfortable. They began to be uncomfortable about Jesus' ministry, popularity, His attraction. But they were most uncomfortable about themselves. Because the greatest fear of a hypocrite is exposure. That's the greatest fear. And religious hypocrisy is so common that it's praised. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees were held in high regard in their hypocrisy. They patted each other on the back, applauded each other, admired each other, complimented each other. And it was the norm. And Jesus warns His disciples and He says, Guys, gals, Here's one thing I want you to be really careful of. Hypocrisy. But he uses a particular word for it. He says the word leaven. You see, I don't think hypocrisy typically starts out as an intentional way of completely messing up our relationship with God. I think hypocrisy begins with some little thing. Tiny. But there's this thing about leaven and loaves. Loaves. You can't contain the effect of the leaven once it's entered the loaf it starts to permeate everything. And so when Jesus gives this warning, He's warning them that religion in itself lends to us trying to hide what we really are. And it typically starts small. Little. Maybe even Almost unintentional. But when Jesus fleshes out this warning, listen to the words. And this is why it gets so scary. In verse 2 of chapter 12 of Luke it says, But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed. Now this is important because when you see the picture of Jesus with the tax collectors... And Jesus with the Pharisees, you're seeing a group of people, the tax collectors, they're just openly what they are. They're just sinners. Nobody has to email them and say, you know what you are, you're a sinner. They know it. They're just openly, wantonly broken men and women. The prostitute doesn't have to have somebody email her and say, you're broken. She knows it. And so they're not covering up what they are. What drew people to Jesus is the lack of pretense in Him. And the welcoming of people who made no pretense. There was no doubt what kind of folks were at the table with Jesus. They've been ripping off their brothers and sisters. They've been taking advantage of the poor. They've been seeing to it that people who didn't pay up were jailed or beaten. Everybody knows. It is what it is. While the Pharisees in their fine apparel and their regular attendance at church make the pretense that they're not just as sinful. So when Jesus gives his warning about this pretense, this hypocrisy, he's holding up a parallel or or a comparison of these two cultures. The culture of religion that pretends. And a gospel culture that says, this is what I am, and I'm coming to you because I need you. And so these people felt welcomed to Him, affirmed by Him, invited into a relationship by Him, and they didn't feel the need to make any kind of pretense about that. While on the outside, the critics who are looking in at the lives of these open, openly sinful people and this one who welcomes them are critiquing them while they're hiding the fact that they are just as Sinful, they've just learned to dress it differently. And it has begun to permeate their entire being. And so this conflict arises because self righteousness is always insecure. Please hear this self righteousness is always insecure. And it will grant you the most horrendous critical spirit. So much so, that if this kind of thing started happening around believers that you know, you would criticize them just like I would. Because self-righteousness is always on the defensive. It's always insecure. And so... The Pharisees and their self-righteousness and insecurity, they got nothing to do except throw stones at Jesus. This is going to galvanize them toward His death because of their fear of exposure. They're going to so want to cover what they really are that they have to get rid of the guy who they fear will expose them for what they really are. All these other folks just flock to him. So back to Matthew, and let's see what happens as a result of this. We've got this conflict that's starting. So Jesus is going to respond to him. So let's go to number four. <clears throat> Jesus's reply to the Pharisees leads us to three important conclusions, and, and these are beautifully woven into his answer. They ask the question, Why? They ask the disciples, but Jesus chooses to answer Himself. You want to know why? Verse 12. But when He heard this, He said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, or the word could be mercy. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And Mark adds in there the other word Jesus said to repentance: sinners to repentance. It's implied in Matthew. And so the first conclusion—oh, oh, we, we are without a screen—I'm sorry. First conclusion: letter A, the condition of sinners. The condition of sinners. Jesus is going to say something that could be really offensive. He's going to call them sick. But think about this. Here's Jesus. He's sitting. He's got a table full of people. He's got a room full of people. He's called out and He gives an answer about these people that are around Him. And what does He say about them? He says, you know what they are? They're all sick. In other stories, Jesus is going to call them lost. The parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost Son, He's going to call them all lost. Another man's going to come to Him and say, I'll follow you, but let me go and bury my father. He'll say, let the dead bury their own dead. He's going to call the sinners dead. So here comes Jesus calling them sick. Calling them dead. Calling them lost. Lost. And so he's going to be frank about the condition of people apart from God. My brothers and sisters, this is very important. Jesus is making sure that we understand that people who are separated from God have a very serious eternal problem. They are sick in their sin. They are lost in their sin. They are dead in their sin. They need a physician. And there ought to be a great burden for us for that condition, as there was for Jesus. And so the first conclusion is is that Jesus is really clear about the condition of sinners. He said, They're sick. Can't you imagine the guys and gals sitting around the table that day hearing the master who they'd come to you saying, they're sick, and all of them look around saying, we're a pretty sick bunch, aren't we? Isn't it true? That when we finally grasp the seriousness of our sin, that we see ourselves as sick? The second thing he gives is what is God concerned about? Interesting. Look in verse 13. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. You see, the Pharisees were big on all the sacrificial rules and regulations. They had the whole church attendance thing down. They had the fasting thing down. They had the giving thing down. They had all of the Scripture reading thing down. They had the prayer thing down. They had all these things down. And they were seen as people who lived very sacrificial lives from the tithing of mint and dill and cumin all the way to the right animals that were offered. All of these things they have down. And they're known as this is a sacrificial people and God yet is calling out saying no what I am after is mercy when, when you look at a sinner what is provoked in your heart what rises up Because only, only one of two things is going to predominate that moment. One of those things is judgment. When you look on a sinner, a person you have classified in whatever your system is, when you look on a sinner, you're either going to look at them with judgment or with mercy when we size up other human beings, we are driven by one of those two things. If we are self-righteous, our tendency will be judgment. Because we are insecure. But if we understand that we too are sick, lost, dead sinners apart from Jesus, then we will look at them, not with judgment, but with mercy. What God is after in His people, in His church, in His image, is that we look at the tax collector, the prostitute, the sinner, And rather than self-righteously welling up with the knowledge that, Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like this guy. Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like this girl. Remember the Pharisee going up to pray and that's exactly what he prayed. And he looked at that sinner and he said, I thank you I'm not like that person. Rather than being able to go up and say, God be merciful to me. The sinner. So, what God is after in His church, in His people, in His re imaging of us in Christ, is that we no longer live with any ounce of self righteous hypocrisy fermenting in our souls but that we rather turn and look at every human being we ever encounter with mercy. And we see them as Christ saw the prostitute, as Christ saw the tax collector, as Christ even saw the self-righteous. And with mercy, extend to them the work of the physician. Here, what is God concerned about? Not whether or not we're all great tithers, but whether or not when we step out of this building today and we enter restaurants and we enter neighborhoods and we go back to work and we go back to school, will we look upon those people as God looks on them? And will we look at them with mercy and know that they Are sick like us, sinful like us, dead like we were without Christ, and that they are in need of the great physician, and bring that good news to them. Jesus says this is what God's concerned about. Third, Jesus makes clear the purpose for which He came into the world. He says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came to call sinners because that's what we all are. Romans 3 makes it so clear. There is none righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It is crystal clear that we are all in this condition and Jesus came to call us, but if we will not see if we will not embrace the reality that apart from Jesus we are sick, apart from Jesus we are lost apart from Jesus we are dead then we'll never hear Jesus' call we'll always be thinking it's for somebody else somebody else, Well, oh, that's for him or her, that's for them or those I don't need that I'm not that bad. Jesus came to call the sinners. He came to be the physician to heal the sick. There's one more thing I want to point out about this text and kind of send you home with it because I think it helps us really see what's going on here in the big picture. Matthew, Mark, and Luke give this particular story, and they also give other stories that Jesus has. Some are in Mark that aren't in Matthew, and some are in Matthew that aren't in Luke, as they kind of tell things from the perspectives of their own lives, and how things were related to them, or how they saw them, and and so they're telling that as the Spirit leads them. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when we get this story of Matthew's calling, in every one of those three books, it comes immediately after the healing of the paralyzed man. That we studied in Sunday school today. Comes immediately after it. Because there's some language and some events that put these two together. So Jesus' is called Matthew, is in the context of a miracle. And this is where it gets really even more beautiful than it already has been. We've got Jesus loving these sinners. We've got Him welcoming, inviting. We've got this affirming that's going on in this glorious salvation of Matthew. But there is a picture that is given here in the context that makes it even more accurate. In chapter 9, in the first few verses, we have the story that we read in Mark today in our Sunday school lesson. And it's the story of the guy who came and was on the pallet and Jesus said, Your sins are forgiven. And then they all kind of murmured about it. And then he said, In order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth, I say to you, take up your pallet and go home. And all of a sudden it says that the guy lay on the pallet who was previously sick, in need of a physician, lame, in need of healing. We see him get up and walk. And then Jesus has this interaction with Matthew. Look in verse 9 at the very end. Jesus walks up to him and says, Follow me. And what happens? What's it say? He rose up and he followed. The language is very similar. Here's a guy laying sick on a pallet. Jesus says, Get up! Go home. It says, he rose up and did as Jesus said. Then you jump into the next door. You've got a guy sitting, dead in his trespasses and sins, in the tax collector's booth, taking oppressive action against his own people, lining his pockets with the money of the poor, greedy as all get out, and you have Jesus say to him, get up and follow. And you see the sick, dead, lost man get up out of his sin and follow Jesus. And then Jesus connects the two stories by saying this phrase. It is not the well who are in need of the physician. It is the sick. And what has happened to Matthew is in his heart is what has happened to the lame man in his body. The physician came by and called him. And by speaking the word of his great and mighty saving power to Matthew, what happened inside Matthew is what happened outside the lame guy. The sick were made well, the dead were raised, the rain would walk, and all of a sudden Matthew rises up out of his sin. What is the greatest miracle of all? It's the new birth. It is that Matthew was born again. This is the glory of the story. And that Jesus is still doing this. He's still going to men and women, boys and girls, and saying to them in their deadness, in their sickness, in their lameness, in their lostness, He's still saying to them, follow Me. And they're still following Him miraculously by faith, enjoying the power of the new birth. So what do we do with this? Well, two things. First, we have to ask ourselves in the story which character am I? The sinner drawn to Jesus who can openly without any kind of religious fakery come and sit at the table and admit, I am sick. I am lost. I am dead. And I need you, Jesus. Or are we in the story, the self-righteous Pharisee who thinks... That he or she is good to go by our own deeds, morality, and effort. Everyone in here today is in one of those two spots. There is no third place. Now Jesus tells these stories and has them recorded for us so that we would have our hearts awakened and respond. And so the first thing is if you're the sinner at the table, you should be enjoying that Jesus has received you. Christ receiveth sinful man. And it should be the joy of your heart to identify, to fellowship with Him and with the sinners who come to Him. It should be sort of the thing that's driving you but if you're the Pharisee and you think you're good to go, I hope, I hope that God would move in your heart today and you would turn from that wickedness and that you would humble yourself and come to Christ. The second thing is to ask this question. We're going to ponder this question deeper later, but I'm just going to put it out there for you to be thinking about. Is our church, at the individual level, members, at the corporate level, gathering, known for being more attractive to Pharisees or to sinners? If we are going to be like Jesus... We will be attractive to sinners and repulsive to Pharisees. If we're going to be like the Pharisees, we will become attractive to Pharisees and repulsive to sinners. So we have to think through at the individual level. That means at the home, at the workplace, all of the things that we do outside, being the church, outside the doors. And then at the corporate level, when we gather, we have to think through. Does our living, our teaching, our preaching, this is a question I'm asking myself, does our life as a church look more like the attractiveness of Jesus drawing in these folks Because they didn't feel the need to be a hypocrite or to make pretense. They were comfortable knowing that they would be loved while being called to repentance. It's important for us. So let's bow together. Some of you today are pondering what it means to follow Jesus, and I want to invite you as He did. He welcomed sinners to Himself. So if you can come to the place of saying, you know, this is true. I am sinful. I am a sinner. And I need Jesus. He welcomes you. He also is affirming you. You were made in God's image and you were designed to reflect how good, glorious, holy, wonderful He is. And you can be transformed into that by leaving your sin, like Matthew did, and following the Savior, Jesus. Placing your faith in the fact that not only did He call people to follow Him, but He did what was necessary to save them. He died for their sins. And He was raised from the dead on the third day to Affirm and give credence to and proof of the payment that he had made being sufficient for your sins. And so, if you would turn from your sin as Matthew did and place your faith in Jesus and follow him, believing this good news, he would save you, he would free you, he would make you his own. Jesus would make you his brother, God would make you his son or daughter. Would you do that today? You can pray that with me now. Would you do that? God in heaven, I am, like Matthew, a sinner. I'm done with pretense. I need you. Thank you that Jesus came to seek and save sinners. I am sick and I need a physician. I am dead and I need a resurrection. I am lost and I need a shepherd to come and find me. I trust Jesus today. Would you save me? I believe that He has died on the cross for my sins. And that He was raised from the dead on the third day. Forgive me. prayed that today wonderfully. The Lord will hear your prayer from a repentant and humble heart. It'd be great for you as those who did today to follow Him publicly and to be baptized. Others of you you're struggling with the question who do I identify with? Jesus and the sinners or the Pharisees? Maybe the Lord will give you clarity as He's working in my life to do the same. As God works in your heart. Would you stand? the